Before we start this episode, I'd like to thank CDW Studios. They're the School of Visual Effects and Entertainment Design, as well as MSI and Storm Effects for supporting the creative community and helping make this episode possible. My name's Matthew Packwood, and welcome to Masters of Motion. Each episode, I'll be talking to some of Australia's and New Zealand's leading motion design, animation, and visual effects artists. Today, I'll be chatting with the outstanding animation supervisor, Matt Everett. Matt started his career in the mid-90s as a 2D animator for television. Before teaching himself CG, and transitioning into the gaming industry. He then moved into the commercial animation industry, working at Passion Pictures London, on brands such as Nestle and Vodafone, as well as working with music artists such as The Gorillaz and Madonna. While at Framestore, he transitioned into animation for feature films. Before moving to Australia and working on Happy Feet 2 and then the Lego movies and many others. He's worked at top animation studios including Dr. D, Method, Milf Film and Mr. X. He's well respected within the industry and a nice guy. Thanks very much for taking the time and coming in and sharing your knowledge with us. It's a pleasure. It's good to be here. What are the most important techniques you need to be a great animator? You need good observational skills. You need to look at the world around you and take it in and absorb it and remember it. And then you can use that in your work. It's not all about technical ability. It's about observation, I think. So as an animator who works in the visual effects industry, how relevant are the principles of animation? You use the principles of animation every single day. So the things that you learn right at the beginning of your career, you're going to use all the way through your career. So those fundamentals are key. You'll use them every single day in your job. What about squash and stretch, for example? Well, you see squash and stretch in everyday life all the time. Somebody walking down the street, a horse running around a corner, that's all squash and stretch. So whether you're working in cartoony animation or photoreal animation, those squash and stretch principles are there. Cool. So what are the main things you're looking for in an animator? It depends, because it's different whether you're a junior, a mid, or a senior. For more senior people, we're looking for people that are kind of more outward-looking, I would say. So if you're thinking you're a senior animator and you're wanting to become a lead or you're wanting to become a supervisor, then it's not so much just about looking down at your machine and looking at your work. It's about also being able to take in what's happening to the crew and how you can help the crew as well as delivering on your shot. What do you like to see in a mid-level animation showreel? For a mid-level animator, I don't think it's too much about the finer, finer degrees of polish. It's just about showing that you've got those fundamentals down and you understand the core principles of how to animate. Yep. If you can show, you know, maybe it's a little bit of acting and a little bit of quadruped or, or some basic cycles as well. So you're starting to show a little bit more of a range in terms of what you can do. Yep. That's kind of good for us in terms of hiring mids because then we know we can put you on different shows. And what about the quality of the rendering and lighting? Personally, I don't really care about the lighting. If it's your own piece of personal work and it's lit so I can actually understand what's going on in the shot, but I don't mind seeing a grey shaded play blast or a fully final comp because I can still tell whether the animation is any good in either one of those versions. I always tell them to try and improve there. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with having good-looking work. Like, you know, a good eye for for detail all around is is great. The better you can present yourself all around, then the the better your opportunities are going to be. Yep. What about a junior? For a junior, I'm just looking for a very, very 
short reel that shows a few of the key principles that they're starting to learn and they're starting to understand. So if you're a junior, really, really keep your reels short because we can tell very quickly whether your work is up to the standard that we need. Yep. And dialogue. I love to see lip sync and acting as well as just yep. the, the basic kind of I don't like the term body mechanics. I'm not a big fan of that, but people call it body mechanics. For me, animation is about performance. So you're just demonstrating that you understand performance, whether that's a walk cycle, whether it's uh, a piece of acting or some dialogue, it all comes under the, the umbrella term, which is performance. Yep. I would say for everyone, keep your reel short. I don't really want music on them. I'm, I'd rather they just be quiet and silent because the music generally distracts from what we're trying to look at. Is there anything else that's important? If you can show examples of work that's gone into the movie, as well as examples of your own work that you do at home, and then that's a good way for us to determine you know, what you've done by yourself and then what you've done with the aid of supervisors and leads. Cool. So what's the best way to demonstrate rigging a character in your showreel? I would say if you can demonstrate just the basic, we call them range of movement workouts. So an, an ROM, we call them in the studio. Yep. So that's just the rig going through a range of kinesthetics. So it doesn't really have overly finessed animation on top of the rig. It's just the rig going through its fundamentals, whether that's dialing in attributes on a, on a face rig or it's showing flex shapes on, on a muscle rig or something like that. It's all about clear, simple presentation of those rigging fundamentals, I think. If you're an animator but you're trying to show rigging skills, I would demonstrate those rigging skills as a separate component to your showreel, uh, maybe at the start or at the end. Yep. How do you promote yourself and move up within a large studio? The way that you handle yourself in dailies, the way that you receive notes from whether it's a lead or a supervisor, and then how you action those notes, they're all things that we're looking at when, you know, supervisors in a dailies environment, we're looking at how people accept the notes and action the notes and then come back with the, with the notes turned around quickly. Helping others is a, a great way for people to see that you understand what you're doing and for you to evolve in terms of, you know, being promoted from a junior to a mid to a, to a senior. Yep. Um, and I think so much of it is just about attitude. If you come into work with a, a positive, open attitude every day, then people want to work with you. People want to be in your team. And then you just naturally find that you're given more and more responsibility. And, you know, you might be given another new starter to help shadow and help them settle into the company. And it just naturally evolves like that. Cool. What TV, movies, books inspired you when you were growing up? Big inspiration to me when I was a kid was a cartoonist called Gary Larson. He was a huge inspiration in terms of his sense of humor and the style that he drew in. I copied his cartoons religiously when I was a kid. He's the one that got me into drawing cartoons and selling my own cartoons. That, that was the style that I used to draw in. Was it comic books or was it actual cartoons? So Gary Larson did single panel comics that were syndicated to newspapers. Very silly jokes. But that was the style that I liked. A bit more art house than, say, Mad magazine? Yeah, a little bit. He's got a famous cartoon. If you just Google Gary Larson cows, yeah. it's a three-panel cartoon about cows in the field. Did that have any influence on leading you to become an animator? Well, originally I wanted to be a newspaper cartoonist like Gary Larson. So I used to draw cartoons in the same style that he did when I was about 14 or 15. And I used to mail my cartoons out to greetings cards companies, so for birthdays and Christmas. Cool. And then people started to send me checks, and they used to purchase my cartoons. So that's how I made a living when I was uh, in my later teens, uh, was drawing and selling jokes and cartoons. I got £75 for a cartoon. And from there, it evolved from wanting to be a cartoonist to then wanting to be an animator. That's cool. And so how did you discover animation? I used to sit and watch Tom and Jerry with my dad. I think Tom and Jerry was the, was the one cartoon that I liked. It was so violent. And they're making a Tom and Jerry movie now as well, so I can't wait to see that. So Tom and Jerry, uh, Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, 
all those old Warner Brothers cartoons, Wile E. Coyote, they were the things that I was into when I was a kid. Did you, like, go to university and study animation? Before I went to Bournemouth, I did a year of studying. I did fine art, graphic design, and photography. Yep. And then from there, I went down to Bournemouth with a whole bunch of flipbooks that I've made and a few little dodgy uh, cartoons that I've made on a borrowed VHS camera and went to study 2D animation in Bournemouth for two years. Cool. And could you briefly describe your career between now and then? I graduated from Bournemouth as a 2D animator. Probably about three days later, we went to a little farmhouse, me and three other students, to work as 2D in-betweeners for a small 2D animation company doing kids' TV cartoons. Uh, From there, I realized there wasn't really a 2D industry in the UK anymore. So I retrained to try and become a CG animator and ended up working in games. I stayed in games for a while. I worked at a company called Elixir Studios with a a guy called uh, Demis Hassabis that went on to develop DeepMind, which he sold to Google for hundreds of millions of dollars, I think. Wow. From games, I went to Passion Pictures um, to work uh, in commercials and music videos and stage shows. I was at Passion for a few years, which was great. Really quick turnaround of projects, and I, I loved it. And from there, I went to Framestore to do commercials and then work on their first animated feature. Cool. From Framestore, we moved to Australia and I worked at Animal Logic uh, doing Legend of the Guardians. From there, it was to Dr. D to work with George Miller, then back to Animal Logic to work on the Lego movies. And then from Animal Logic, it was to Method Studios where I did Outlaw King for Netflix. From there, it was to uh, Millfilm, which is now Mr. X, and doing Dora and the Lost City of Gold and Cats. Wow, that's quite impressive. Uh, It was like over a 20-year period, I'd imagine. Oh, I'm tired just thinking about it. (laughs) (laughs) That was longer than usual, actually. Uh, uh, Alrighty. So over that period, which projects do you think were the most successful and satisfied you the most? That's difficult to say because at the end of every project, you never want to see that that project again. So (laughs) it takes a while to look back and and then enjoy and appreciate what you did. I think the the journey of the project is is part of the fun of doing it rather than just the the outcome at the end. Um, So there's been a lot of really good learning experiences over the years. Working at Passion, doing uh, the Gorillas live show with Madonna was a great experience. It was very intense, huge turnaround of work seen by, I don't know, it's like a billion people or something on the night of the show at the Grammy Awards. Wow. I loved working in Lego. Lego is a really, really good tool to work with, and it's like getting a huge box of Lego bricks to play with every day. Um, Doing Outlaw King was great because it was a lot of research about um, photoreal locomotion of horses, which was a really, really interesting thing to learn. And then I would say Dora as well, just because of that combination of live action and kind of cartoon, almost photo reel style as well. Cool. And, and what did you do on the Madonna Gorillas video? That was a, a hologram projection that we did. I was given the task of animating Murdoch with uh, one other animator. So we shared that performance between the two of us. The whole show, I think, was several minutes long. So it was several minutes of continuous animation that had to work on screen for the audience watching at home as well as the people in the audience uh, watching the show. Yep. And just working with the gorillas characters and for Jamie Hewlett and the director Pete Candeland was just a joy. Did you meet the gorillas? <laughs> so I met Jamie and Damon a couple of times, but yeah, it was great. So over your career, have you had any failures and what did you learn from them? So many failures. There's almost too many to talk about. I think my biggest failure was my, my failure at school. I, I got pretty much zero grades for everything. I was a complete and utter flop as a student. I had zero interest in what I was doing. I had no motivation. I, I was just an awful student. Wow. But then when I went to Bournemouth and I met uh, the, the tutor there, called, a guy called Peter Parr, who was an absolute superstar, he inspired me to, to really, you know, want to create good things and to create good art and to put my heart and soul into what I do. 
Uh, and ever since I've, that time with him, I've been a bit of a changed person in terms of my motivation and the way that I work and, and the things that I try to achieve. So uh, I was a terrible student. And what was the hardest thing that you had to learn to progress your career? To understand that everyone's trying their hardest and to not get frustrated when things don't go seemingly your way straight away. Like on every project, everyone's just doing their best for their little piece of the project. And yep. there's quite often bigger things at play than what you understand, especially when you're just coming into the industry. You think, why aren't these things moving quicker? Why haven't I got this? Why haven't I got that? Yep. And there's always more at play than just the simple yes and no of, of certain things. I've learned to be more patient. It's, it's strange, you know, being an animator, people say, oh, you must be extremely patient, but I'm not. I'm extremely impatient. I like things to be done quickly is that as a manager or an artist that you were impatient i was extremely impatient as an artist definitely for years and years and years and i think it's just part of growing up as well of just settling into yourself a little bit now as a manager i hope i'm i understand and i'm I'm patient with the the people that i work with i hope so what was the benefit of starting out in a 2d animation for television studio I still think about animation in 2D all the time and I still explain animation in 2D and if I'm having trouble communicating an idea then I often will draw it. Having a traditional artistic background I think is extremely beneficial not just if you're a 2D animator but as you progress you know into different mediums as well. Drawing is how I talk to directors, other supervisors, artists it's, it's just the easiest way to communicate. So I'm really thankful for that 2D background. And I still think about animation as a 2D thing because in the end of the day, it's images on screen. So it's in terms of silhouettes or in terms of poses that you're trying to create, I often think about them in terms of 2D. Cool. What was it like working in a gaming company in the late 90s? I remember... We did a lot of long hours, but I think because we wanted to. I think it was because we found it fun. Yeah. I think because we we thought we were making something interesting and new, and it was kind of a new technology. We got to play games every day in the morning, which was kind of nice as well. Yeah. But there's definitely a few sessions where we would come to work on Friday and we wouldn't leave until Monday. And, and what sort of games were you making? We did some console games to begin with, and then we did some PC games when I was working at Elixir Studios. Yeah, Elixir was interesting because it was a, a bunch of extremely intelligent people that they put together to, to drive that company and to come up with the technology. So it was a combination of high technology and also a bunch of you know extremely creative people as well, and it was trying to kind of merge those two mindsets together. What was it like working at Passion Pictures, and what did you learn through this period? Passion was great because it's uh, quite a small company, but it's full of lots of different directors making projects in different styles. It could be stop motion, CG, 2D, or a, a blend of all different kinds of mediums. So it was, a, it was a great place to sharpen my skills as an animator and learn how to turn around projects very quickly. Tell us a little bit more about what happened, because that, that was a pretty cool studio doing good stuff at that time. Yeah, it was great. And I was kind of inspired to do, you know, bits and pieces of my own as well at home. Ricky Gervais was one of the first guys to do a a podcast way back then. And I sampled a little bit of uh, his voice, uh, made an animation and sent it off to his agent and sent him a little clip. And then about a week later, I got a a phone call to the studio saying, oh, hi, it's it's Ricky. Do you want to come around the corner and have a chat about the animation you sent? Cool. So I walked around the corner because luckily his office was right next door to our office and him and Stephen Merchant were there and they asked me what I wanted to do with this animation and I had no idea I had to just come up with something on the spot so I came up with this idea for a MTV show and Ricky gave me a hand and we put together a a pitch for a a series and they lined me up with a a meeting at MTV and I went off and pitched them my show cool Uh, it was great it was a really fun experience Unfortunately, the show never never came to air, but it was it was a really good experience. And that was around the period he was in the office, yeah. Yeah, so he'd just finished the office. He was just starting to do extras in his little office that where we used to go and, and talk about ideas. He had all of the extras kind of planned out on his wall. He was very good. He was very inviting of ideas, and he used to kind of 
come and knock on my door at, at Passion and say, oh, I've got an idea for this or I've got an idea for that. Would that work as animation or that kind of thing? So, yeah, he's a um, very open and very welcoming guy. W- was he funny? He's very funny. <laughs> he's hilarious and you can't stop laughing. He's, he's just got positive, such a positive outlook. Yeah, it, it was absolute joy to show him a small piece of animation and then just watch him giggle while he watched it. And I think once he actually fell off his chair, like properly <laughs> fell on the floor watching a piece of animation, which was great. Well, that's cool. Well, I've been watching a show that he's made that's sort of depressing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> do you know that show? I do, I'm yeah. <laughs> I think it's called Afterlife. Oh, that's pretty funny. Uh, that's cool. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet, though. Cool. <laughs> I'll give it a watch. Oh, fuck. What did you learn, like, at Passion doing all those short TVCs and corporate projects? You know, what sort of things did you learn about animation? I learned how to turn around ideas very quickly and very succinctly. Because quite often on a, on a commercial, you don't have long. So it's about getting your ideas out in the simplest, easiest to understand way and communicating that to the director and then pitching that to the whoever owns the brand that you're working for or um, whoever the client is. It taught me to be not too precious, especially to begin with. There's time to be precious with your work and there's time to just, you know, as if you're drawing in 2D, as if you're just sketching an idea. You know, you don't polish it to begin with. You just work rough and quick. Cool. I found one of your reels from Passion Pictures. <laughs> oh, did you? <laughs> You've, it's still on YouTube. Uh, uh, it's, it's had 553 watches. Oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Uh, I, I, I'm going to delete that now. <laughs> it's the only one I could find. Have you got any other reels online? No. I haven't made a show reel for a long time. Cool. Which is strange. When you become a supervisor, it's less about a show reel and more about you as a person. Yep. What was your big transition at Framestore and how did that have an effect on your career? So Framestore, I initially went into their commercials department, did a few jobs for them, but they were just ramping up to do their first animated feature film. So obviously they've been doing VFX and commercials for a long time, but they'd never done an animated feature. I went over to the animated feature side as a lead animator this time, so looking after a team of, I think I had a team of 10 or 11, yep. and worked on the Tale of Despero for a good few years. Framestore is when you started managing people? Yeah, so I was a kind of a managing people when I was in games, but then I stopped doing that to just go back to just being a regular animator when I was at Passion. I think I just wanted to go back to improving my own skills. Yeah. Uh, and then when I went to Framestore, yeah, I was back to running a team, and I think I'd grown up a little bit, and I was a little bit more suited to being able to manage a team by that point. What did you learn? What were the big learnings in management? And what things did you struggle with and then improve on? If you genuinely care for the people that you're looking after, I think it's a huge positive. And if you can if you can demonstrate that, like you've got their best interests at heart, you just want to help them put their best work on screen. That's all you're trying to do. You're not trying to take anything away from them. You're just there to, to help. And a lead animator, their job really is to keep the work moving through the department and to, to help the work get, finaled and delivered down the pipeline in in the best way possible yeah from frame store all the way to now the the people that i manage whether it's 10 or whether it's 100 you know i genuinely care about their well-being and, and them wanting to do good work and help them put their best work on screen cool and then that makes them happy and hopefully makes the director happy as well yeah. <laughs> well, I spoke to Megan and she gave you a pretty good rap. Oh, that's good. As a boss, so you must be going okay. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm trying to lighten it up a little. I'll cheer you up by the end, it's all right. Well, I mean, making movies is meant to be the best job in the world. Well, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> when, you, when you tell people you make movies for a living, they say, wow, that must be the best thing ever. And obviously it's like any other job, but... It's not a real job. Well, I've always fancied wine tasting as a job well, that I'd like go. to do. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> At what age did you move to Australia? And did you have a family? And what was it like working with George Miller? We had a young family when we moved to Australia. So we moved to Australia oh, 12 years ago. 
at the time when we left London, work had dried up a little bit in London. For so long in the London film industry, Harry Potter kind of kept everything afloat. It just seemed like there was no more Harry Potter all of a sudden. And so there was not a lot of work to go around. So we had the choice either to go to LA to work on Cloudy with a chance of meatballs, I think it was, or come to Sydney. And we we chose to come to Sydney and come to Animal Logic. Yeah. It was great. I, I've, I'd always wanted to live in Australia ever since I was seeing Crocodile Dundee when I was a kid. So I couldn't wait to be here. I thought it was great. Crocodile Dundee, it was sort of just like that. It's, oh, it's exactly the same. <laughs> uh, that was, you know, that's a, it's a classic movie, I have to say. It's simple, but classic. <laughs> uh, what was it like working at Dr. D with George Miller? Great. It was a huge learning experience. George just likes to talk about filmmaking to and he'll talk to you the same way he'll talk to you know someone more senior or a regular artist he's he's always more than happy to to share information about his past and how he's made movies previously and he's also very keen to learn you know at the time happy feet 2 it was a stereo movie i think it was probably his first stereo project yep so he was very keen to understand you know the principles behind that and understand the technology behind how it worked um yeah, he was great. I mean, very, very hard to get him to final a shot because he's so specific about what he wants. Yeah. Um, you know, he will scrutinize your work to the nth degree, but at the end of the day, it makes you produce better work. And every time you go into the dailies with him, you're raising your game. You're bringing your best work that you possibly can. Yeah. But at the same time, he does it with a smile as well. So he's an absolute legend. Was it better having a lot of revisions from the director being nearby and in the room rather than overseas and on a video conference? Well, it's always better to be able to look somebody in the eye, whether you're giving or receiving that feedback. It's nice to be in the same space with them and and look at them properly so they understand that you get it and, you know, you understand what they're trying to say. Yeah. In terms of doing a lot of revisions, that's part of the job and being creative isn't a linear process you don't start here and always end here sometimes you have to find your way sometimes you have to go down cul-de-sacs and then turn around and come back and try something else so and that's something that you just you know you learn as you move through the industry is that it's not always as simple as a to b yeah but you find better results by experimenting or by trying different things or by sometimes doing a lot of revisions you know sometimes you get a, a version one revision who knows who knows how it's going to go I often talk to a lot of artists who complain about revisions and how it affects their sort of mental health and psyche. Yeah. Any advice to people for handling revisions? Yeah, it's difficult, especially to begin with, because you're so precious about what you've created and you put your heart and soul into it. And there aren't many other industries where you, you know, you create something and then you put it in front of all of your peers and everyone dissects it and pulls it to pieces having that experience in front of everyone you're working with and then you have to go away and try again. It can be a little bit soul-destroying to begin with. Yeah. I think you just have to look at the bigger picture. A movie isn't about a shot. A movie is about all of the shots put together and how that makes the audience feel when they're all put together and it's playing as a big experience. Yeah. There's no one shot that's going to break a movie and there's no one shot that's going to make a movie, but together they can make something special. So I would say try and look at the bigger picture of what you're trying to achieve. Cool. Good answer. Animal Logic, you went there twice. Could you tell us a little bit about one of the projects that challenged you the most and what you learned out of those challenges? I worked on three Lego movies in total in various different capacities. Lego movies look extremely simple and they're meant to look extremely simple but they're incredibly challenging and quite taxing and the the level of attention to detail is absolutely through the roof on those projects yeah so it's you know it was hard to maintain that feeling of kid-like simplicity and that that kid-like joy that you get from playing with Lego and playing with your toys and building your own worlds in your head and then trying to put that on screen. But I think it made us all better animators for it. Yep. And I think restrictions are good things. If you don't have any restrictions, then 
it's almost like you don't create anything too specific. It all just becomes a little bit kind of bleh. But if you have restrictions on your work, then it forces you to think around, you know, different challenges and have different ideas and think around the corners a little bit. And that's what Lego provided. You know, it's like you can only move this number of limbs in this number of ways. You can only, you know, create these kind of poses. How do you create the feeling of sadness on a Lego minifig with those restrictions? We're talking very big paintbrush strokes here. Could you give us an example of like a, a small problem that you overcame and sort of how you overcame it? Basically, one of the restrictions we had was that you could never see plastic penetrate plastic in the Lego movie world. Yep. So how do you make a minifig scratch its nose? One, it doesn't have a nose. And two, it, it can't actually physically move its arm into that position. So how do you achieve that when the script says this character scratches its nose? And it's in terms of where you place the camera and how you pose the characters and how you cut it and edit it. It is possible, but you just have to think out of the box a little bit in terms of how you solve that problem. And how did you solve that problem? <laughs> you pull the arm out of the socket and place the arm between the camera and the body of the minifig so it looks like it's scratching its nose but in fact it's not and you can't see any of the penetrations or holes that the plastic has revealed because it's all hidden to the camera. Smoke and mirrors. Cool, that's good. So I remember seeing that with my son Max, the Lego movie, yeah. and the singing and the outrageous joy. And I remember sending a picture to Rob Coleman just saying, you know, this was a great movie. Well done, Rob. Uh-huh. And he said that uh, he got a lot of feedback like that. Did you think that Lego movie had more feedback than any of your other movies? It was certainly lightning in a bottle. It definitely captured the imagination of the, of the kids who went to see it. And a lot of the parents enjoyed it too. I don't know, it's difficult to say. I did watch those movies with the audience a few times and it, it was a lot of fun to watch it with an audience. Do you have kids? I've got two kids, yeah. And did you watch it with them? I did. Every project that they're old enough to watch, I watch with my kids. So it's normally the last time I watch it for, for quite a while, I watch it with my kids and they're pretty honest with their feedback. <laughs> <laughs> and what was it like working with Rob? He was great. He's, yeah, he, he's very open. He's very, very easy to work with. And I have to actually thank him a lot because he's given me some great opportunities in my career and, and really been a huge support to me, especially while I was at Animal. Yeah. So, yeah, he's been a huge support. Was there a lot of teaching going on or in, because he had all that experience on Star Wars and like a whole list of movies? Well, that's the thing, because while I was at Animal, I went from being a, a lead to animation director. So, you know, in terms of how I took that step from managing a small team to managing a large team, he was always there to kind of give me advice in terms of, you know, how you look after that crew. And even the things that people don't think about in terms of the scheduling side and the crewing side and all those kind of more managerial things that you have to do as you move up the chain a little bit. You know, there's a lot of work and, and thought that goes into that in terms of how you structure and plan a show that people often don't see, but is integral to keeping a smooth running show. I just want to take a little break now to thank the sponsors. Okay, no problem. If you're looking for a fantastic mobile workstation, that is designed for the entertainment and creative industries, whether it's for processing complex 3D or 2D workflows in design, multimedia, illustration, animation, CG or visual effects, MSI's high-end mobile laptops provide one of the best solutions available for creative professionals. Find out more at msi.com forward slash workstations. For over 27 years, StormFX has been providing the technology that powers the Australian and New Zealand creative industries. Whether your focus is in animation or VFX, we are experienced in providing the technology insights and the solutions you need to get through your challenges and realise your dreams.
You all ready to get back into it? Ready when you are. What's the difference between being a visual effects supervisor and an animation supervisor? Well, the VFX soup has to think about everything. My job is easier. I just have to think about the animation side. I just have to make things move nicely. A VFX soup is is dependent on all of his other individual soups for their different departments to bring their best work to the table so the the VFX soup can, can gather it all together to present your work to the client and to also make sure that the departments are getting the best work delivered to them to work on. What is the process of creating an animation style for an animal or a creature? The first step is always research. Research, 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 and then research some more. Whether it's something that exists in the real world or whether it's a creature designed by a concept artist, but then if that creature you know, has, has wings or it's got four legs or two legs or whatever it is, then you've, you find something appropriate to, to that in terms of scale and structure. Yep. But when we did uh, Outlaw King, we had to do basically a huge battle of riders on horseback. And the, the first thing we did for myself and the animation team was go to the local stables and see horses up close and get a feel for their weight and their scale and their power and look at how they locomoted around. They had like a little run that the horses could run around. Yeah. And we'd, we'd film the horses and get as much information as we could and talk to the trainers and talk about in terms of how horses move and, and how they behave and what freaks them out and what makes them agitated and what makes them calm and placid. Yeah. I mean, also horses are just incredibly difficult to understand in terms of how they locomote, but they're beautiful creatures as well. So it's trying to, you know, combine all of that into the work that you put in on screen. Yeah, well, that was with Method Studios, was it? That was with Method, yeah, in Sydney. When you do research, where do you go to do your research? Like, if you can't find the animal, what do you usually do? Well, these days, you can find everything on the internet if you really want to. Yeah. Back in the day, when we didn't really have that opportunity, I had some books called Animal Locomotion that I still own. Yeah. Um, the MyBridge books are still completely uh, wonderful. So I've got the MyBridge books at home as well in terms of understanding how animals locomote. And then just look at the real thing. So go out and find them, whatever it is, if, if you can. I mean, if it's a polar bear and you don't, you know, <laughs> a bit, bit tricky to see up close. But, I mean, research is key. The, the more you can understand what you're animating, this comes down to anything, whether it's creatures or animals or people or whatever it is, the more you understand about what you're animating, you know, the less you actually have to think about it when you're going through and constructing those pieces of work because the knowledge is already in the back of your head. Cool. So what are the main challenges that you face when you're trying to animate creatures or animals and how do you overcome them? Often when you're first blocking in that initial work, you don't have the the muscle systems available for you to understand how it's going to look once it's got the muscles and the skin sliding and the fur, depending on fur length or, you know, all those things that help sell the performance of the creature. It's all those little things that all add up that make it feel believable or real and that comes down to the simulations around the creature whether it's dust or smoke or water or whatever it is you know it's all of the departments coming together that make the thing feel real so you have to kind of almost see through your animation a little bit and imagine what it's going to be on the other side especially when you're just doing that initial blocking and try not to over animate it so you know in terms of breaking the laws of physics. If you can animate something that feels real within the laws of physics in terms of weight and timing when you're doing a real creature, that's going to help it feel believable on screen. If you push things too far, you make things feel too fast and too snapping, then you lose that sense of uh, believability. Cool. And when you want to create like super realistic animals, what do you do to get that last 5% that makes it real? The last 5% is the hardest bit of any shot on any show, especially when you've been working on a shot for a long time. And it's all those little bits of minutiae. It's the tiny little things that maybe some people wouldn't even notice, but it's the things that you've noticed as as an animator that you can dial into your work. Yeah. And it also depends on what the director wants, because sometimes you might present 
something completely photo real to a director but movies aren't always about photo real they're about projecting something that feels slightly heightened or maybe they want a little bit more emotion or they want to feel something a little bit more dynamic so the director's going to push you in one direction or the other to try and get that feeling of what they need for the shot what's your sort of method when you the director's looking at the stuff and not liking what you're doing what's the the message you do to try and either bring it around or get back on track I would hope before we even get to that point that we spent enough time trying to figure out what the director wants that at least when we present the work there's something in there that you can find that is what they want. I mean I think it's very very rare that I've ever had a director look at something and just say no it's completely wrong. There's normally something within the work that you can take something from something that's that you can use as a positive note. And then the thing to do is, whether it's director or whether it's a supervisor or whether it's an executive or a producer, is to understand why they don't like it and what they want and what they're trying to achieve and, and talk to them and ask them questions. Yeah. And don't take it personally. You know, if, if they don't understand what you've done, it's not their fault. It's your fault or it's my fault as the supervisor. So if, if an audience or, or anyone doesn't understand what you're doing, then... It's, it's our job to figure out why and then and then present something better. But what do you think's the main thing that makes good communication? I, I mean, I, I think honestly, you, you just try and talk to everyone as if they're an adult and as if we all understand what we're trying to achieve and we're all doing our best to, to make the best movie possible. And people genuinely respond well when they can see that you're trying your best. That's a good point. Can you explain the different techniques that you use when creating a character animation style that is more creative, less realistic, like, for example, on Dora or Lego Movie? Lego projects, I had a lot of live-action reference for each character in in the movie when we are doing Lego Ninjago. They all had their live-action reference package that I put together. Yep looking at real actors so i actually kind of went to realism as a reference for what the animation was going to be and i was kind of like cherry picking mannerisms or the way that someone walked or the way that they turned their head or the way that they smiled those kind of things as as reference for what the for what the action was going to be yeah and then i mean i do often go to very strange places for reference and anyone who's been in dailies with me will know that i sometimes go off on extremely strange tangents when thinking about a shot i'll be looking at a shot and i'll i'll suddenly think about this movie or that tv show the other day i referenced a tv show called manimal which was an old 1980s tv show about a man that could turn into uh, a hawk or a panther or a snake, I think it was, or a bear. Awful American TV show. But that was my reference at the time. That's what I thought of. So we pulled it up and we watched it because there was something about it that I wanted to try and squeeze into that shot. I tend to go to quite strange places for reference. And with the creatures that are in Dora, like the ape, what would you call that character? Uh, in Dora, there was a little, little monkey called yeah. Boots and there was a fox called Swiper. How do you try and develop those styles that are not mimicking real life? For that, the some of the reference, we looked at old Looney Tunes in terms of the kind of comedic timing. Yep. And a lot of it just comes from my own sense of humour. It's often what makes me laugh. Those are the, okay, it's, quite, it's a lot easier to pitch something that makes you laugh to someone else than, than something that, that you don't find that funny. So quite often if there's an idea that I have that, makes me giggle then I'm, I'm quite open to pitching that in the room and seeing whether it makes other people giggle as well and does the director have an opinion on the movement on the style on that yeah. are they like giving leading you along or are you leading them oh for sure the, the directors have opinions on everything yeah that's their job a director's job is to have an opinion so you can ask them about what color should that wall would be and they'll, they'll tell you and they'll they'll hopefully no i mean quite often it's almost like converting the language a little bit a director might ask for for something in a shot or a piece of performance and then you kind of almost convert that to animation talk that you can then discuss it with the team about in terms of oh it needs to have this kind of pose or this kind of feeling or these kind of breakdowns in the movement that's how we're going to achieve it so you're almost like interpreting 
And it's the same as well with, with producers and executives. They, they might ask for things in a certain way, and then you have to kind of convert it into animation language. Yep. What is your methods when you're trying to sell your ideas to the different stakeholders? It's easier to sell ideas that you genuinely, you know, find funny or find interesting. So it's trying to mine, yeah. you know, the certain situations or the shots for the for the good things that you can get out of it. And you just have to go in with it with 110% and commit. You know, it's okay if someone likes it and it's okay if they don't. But quite often, you know, if you're presenting an idea, it might spark off a different conversation that might go in a different direction, that might help a different shot or a different beat in the movie somewhere else. So... I would say never be shy about sharing your ideas because you never know where they're going to go. And is your verbal description important? I'm naturally quite a shy person, but it seems when I'm talking about animation, I don't mind standing up in front of a large group of people and performing what I want it to be. And I'm quite happily do that in front of in front of juniors or supervisors or whoever. And it's just a lot easier sometimes to express yourself by moving yourself around the room. Yeah. So I'll, I'll quite happily act out what I want it to be. You've got to be equipped with the ability to do that. Is that something that's commonly done? A lot of animators are wannabe actors for sure. I think also quite often the people you're working with, so if you're working with a certain director you know a little bit about their background or you know a little bit about what they like and the kind of projects that they like or what they're trying to create, then if you can frame that idea within that context so you can, you know, if you know that they like these kind of things, like this kind of shot from this kind of movie or this piece of dialogue, then you can frame it in a context that they might enjoy more. Yeah. This is the last section, so it'd be great if we could keep it tight, but not... Really tight. <laughs> Medium tight. Medium. <laughs> That's funny. All right. So <laughs> now I'd like to talk about Dora the Explorer and the experience of being a on-set animation supervisor. Could you tell us about Dora the Explorer, how many shots there were, and the basic plot of the movie? I honestly can't remember how many shots there were. A I lot. Should, I should be able to tell you that. There were quite a lot. Dora was a, a blend of, it's live action, it's got animated characters that are semi-photo real and semi-cartoony. So there's a, a bit of a blend of styles, which was quite an interesting proposition when we were talking about it at the start. The, the CG characters have, you know, photo real fur and they interact with the live action actors, but they also have a feeling because of what the background of where the properties come from, of, of a cartoony kind of nature and the way that they behave and the way that they interact with the world around them. So it was a live action with animated characters, but they weren't like the ones in the original show. They were sort of more yeah, 3D. Yeah, they're, they're, three, they're CG. You know, they have, you know, fur and refraction on the eyeballs and saliva and dust and all those usual things that you get. But they were also meant to be, you know, a little bit funny and a little bit silly. And which part of the movie sort of had visual effects? Was it just the characters or was there more than that? No, there's visual effects all the way through the movie. There's environments, there's backgrounds, there's various replacements here and there, and then there's the CG characters and the usual touch-up work done in 2D as well. Cool. And where were you on set? We were on set up on the Gold Coast, shooting on the sound stages up there and also shooting out on location around a place called Mount Tambourine, which is absolutely beautiful. I recommend it as a place to go. Cool. How did you get the opportunity to be an on-set animation supervisor? It depends on the job, to be honest. I mean, I've done a little bit of on-set work before on previous jobs. And whether the animation soup is required on set or not completely depends upon the type of project that it is and what they're trying to get out of the project. So sometimes you might make quick little trips onto set for for the odd day and sometimes might be there for longer like I was for, for Dora. Yeah. Because of that interaction between the CG characters and the actors, it was good to have an anim soup there to offer his opinion in terms of, you know, what we're going to need to to get the work back in the studio in the best way. It's more like, say, you were in the studio and a job just came up and you were just suddenly had to do it, or did you have to go and try and state your case to step up to do that sort of role? Uh, it was like any other job interview. I mean, when I 
join the show. It's it's like any other job interview. I, I had done various bits of on-set work before as well. Yeah. And being on set, it's like being in a studio, but everything is compressed. Everything's squeezed into shorter time frame, and uh, it's a lot more yeah compressed in terms of the way that you work. But it's a lot of fun. It's really good. And is the visual effects supervisor on set with you? And what's the dynamic like? You'll always have a visual effects soup on set. Yeah. And the visual effects producer as well. And then when the animation soup's there, it's kind of my job to think about the physics of how things are going to work in terms of the timing and the motion and how it's going to interact with the actors on set or with the environment that they're shooting on set. Yep. So you work very, very closely with the visual effects supervisor to make sure that you're not going to blow his or her budget when they get back to the studio. You, you're providing material that is useful for every department. You know, It's not just about making sure you've got good material for the animation department. It's, it's making sure that everyone is catered for you know, in whatever way you can. So before you started the shoot, what sort of communication did you have with the crew is that important or do you just arrive on the day and get into it? No, there's always an element of pre-production, but there's always a million and one other things to think about as well. Part of your job as a supervisor is to think of the, the issues and, and help solve the issues on behalf of you know, the people that you're working with and working for. So, you know, in terms of the, the producers and the directors, they've, they've got more to think about than just, you know, your element of the show. So it's, you know, it's your job to help provide questions and also solutions for the potential of what, what's going to happen on the shoot. And then on every single shoot that I've been on, things evolve as you go through the shoot. Ideas come and go, locations might change, weather might change. You know, there's always things evolving and happening, so you need to be able to think on your feet and come up with solutions to to get around those issues as they as you go through the shoot. On the Dora shoot, what was the typical sort of standard day look like for you? And did you have a routine and a checklist of the things that you wanted to do? Yeah, so I mean, every day at the end of the day, you get a call sheet for the following day in terms of where you're going to be and what time you need to be there. If we were shooting out on location, my day would start at 4.30 in the morning because we would be have to be ready to roll by 6 a.m. So it meant getting up, driving out to location, eating some breakfast with the VFX soup and the VFX producer and the other members of the VFX crew, figure out what we're going to do for the day, decide whether we need to divide and conquer to cover if it's you know more than one camera going at the same time or if the crew is being split in any way. Yep. And then talk about the plan for the day and then watch that all fall apart as the day evolves. What are the sort of things that you're trying to look for when the action's happening? Like when they start shooting, what are the main things that you're sort of looking for? I mean, it, it completely depends on the shot they're trying to get because if, I mean, you might have a potentially a CG character that's going to interact with, with a piece of clothing on a character. So you might talk to the special effects crew in terms of how they're going to rig that clothing and then what's that going to give you actually when you shoot it, you know, whether you need, you're going to have to do certain wire removal or whether you're going to try and just, um, you know, do it in other ways. Sometimes I might be just off camera um, performing for what the character is going to be. So I also have to be available to perform in place of what the CG characters are going to do. Sometimes I might be talking to the actors and talking to them in terms of how they're going to interact with the CG characters. Yep. It could be talking to the DP or the director or whatever department needs to know in terms of you know how that shot's going to play out. Do you have any puppets or tracking markers or things like that? Yeah, so depending on what the shoot needs, you'll either have some kind of puppet that you can manipulate or something to show the general size or scale or weight of the character of what it's going to be. Yep. Sometimes I might just act it out myself just off camera. Wow. So you have to be versatile and open to doing anything. <laughs> the idea of acting is just full on. <laughs> <laughs> right, we're almost there. i just got to get back on track. <laughs> And like at the end of the day and the producers comes to you, what's your main responsibility? Like do you have to sign off shots? On the shots, my main thing is to be talking to the VFX soup and the VFX producer. And between us, we, we're making sure that we've got what we need. So it's not just 
about what I need. It's making sure that everyone's got the things that they need. Yeah. But it's also trying to do that in a way that you're not disrupting the production. You, the production needs to be able to flow and keep going. And they need, you know, all the other departments need to either get the reference that they need or they're, they're pulling the, the set down while they're putting another set up or whatever it is. So it's making sure that you're staying on your toes and staying aware of the situation and trying to get everything for every department as you, as you move through the, the day shooting. And how did you learn what to do before you went and worked on films? Well, I'd done bits and pieces on various other projects as before. So it, my experience had kind of grown in terms of understanding how to behave on set. Really, when you're on set, the idea is you should be invisible until you're needed. And when then when you're needed, you should have instantly be there ready with the answer to solve the problem. So you kind of you need to be sort of there and ready and, and on your toes all the time. And I've got to say, I really do enjoy the, the on-set side of the work. And did you read any books or like watch good YouTube video masterclasses or anything? Or have you just taught yourself through doing the work? No, I think my entire career I've just learned from doing, really. I just kind of, yeah, just do it. I'm just trying to, you know, people are scared of doing this stuff and they want to do it, but they just sort of don't know how. I would say with with anything, it's the Nike motto, isn't it? Just do it. <laughs> Just go for it. Whatever it is, whether it's sending ideas to a comedian you think they might like or whether it's applying for a job or wanting to get into a different side of the industry, just go for it. What's the worst that can happen? Uh, I don't know, Corona 2020. Uh, <laughs> but... What's the methods you use to communicate with them well and explain what you want? Your relationship with the director evolves through a show. If you're on a, a show which has got an element of live action, then you've got an element of post-production. A director on set has 100 people all with 20 questions each, all wanting instant answers. So a director on set is is someone trying to think of a million different things at once. So you, you kind of don't want to get in their ear unless you really, really need to. But then as you evolve through the show and you're, you're in the post-production side, yep. you then find you have a little bit more time and opportunity to explore things a little bit more fully yep. and to engage a little bit more directly. But a lot of the confidence and understanding starts in those initial conversations where they're telling you what they want the movie to be and you're coming up with ideas or solutions or things that can help them achieve that goal. Do you watch the dailies? Are you doing any sort of editing as the shoot's going along to see if things are working or any tests or anything? We'll be doing potentially elements of pre-vis or maybe even a little bit of post-vis depending on how the work's coming through. Um, I mean, you're constantly watching the playback as well. Now we're shooting on digital all the time. There's constant playback available for everyone so you can sh- see the shots evolving as they're shooting. And it's it's also something you learn is to be able to map out a movie in your brain and understand where a shot is going to go in the movie and how it's going to cut. Yeah, That's something I've kind of practiced through the years in terms of, you know, I can close my eyes and visualize the way that a movie is, is playing and how it's going to all cut together and what shot's going to cut to what shot and where it's going to cut and how it's going to work. So quite often I have a, a version of the film in my head. Cool. And when you're on set, so what are the main methods you use to avoid setbacks or failures that will lead to blowouts in post? Try and plan as much as you can. You try and plan for everything and think of every possible thing that's going to happen that might go well or might go not so well. There's always surprises and there's always things that you you didn't predict were going to happen or there's, you know, shots that they suddenly tried to create or whatever. But I think just that understanding of of the post side of the work helps you then think on your feet when you're actually on set shooting for real and knowing the kind of material that you would normally get and if there's something you would normally want that's better then that's going to help feed into um, feed into what you're doing on set but also it's just that constant conversation with the team around you it's constantly talking to the vfx soup and the uh, vfx producer and the the data wranglers and everyone in terms of just having that constant communication
Is there an ever a, a position where you say, this is not working, it's not going to be right in post? Yeah, of course. But you also need to be there with the solution of how you can help everyone make it better in terms of whether you need a, a blue screen here or whether you need this light or whatever it is. You should never just present the problem. You should also present the solution if you can. Yeah. When you're under pressure and you see that problem, do you sort of consult with your team or do you try and make the best judgment yourself? And is there an ability to just walk up to the producer or executive producer and say, this ain't going to work? Or is it more you've got to sort of work as a team and get your producer to talk to them? Well, if you think about a way a shot is constructed, like a shot doesn't just appear out of nowhere. It takes time to... You know, either you're building the set or you're you're doing your you know your first run of camera with the stand-ins or whatever. So there's always not like something that happens completely out of the blue. So you should be able to look ahead a little bit and see any potential problems coming over the horizon, and then talk to the relevant people and move up the chain where applicable. What makes a good animation on-set supervisor? For any supervisor, you need to have a confidence in your own ability in terms of you know what you're talking about. Yeah. It's tricky because being on set, you need to be able to gauge people, I think, and understand you know, that everyone is under a, a certain amount of time pressure and stress and the, the best way to navigate through those groups to also help make sure that you get the best material for your crew. So there's a lot of reading the situation to make sure that you, you're helping everyone and to achieve the best result. So it's less understanding the animation and more understanding the people and how to relate with them. But if you don't understand the animation, if you don't understand, if you don't have all of those fundamentals there, then that's not going to help you make good decisions when you're on set. Yep. You need to have all of that thorough understanding of, of animation. So when you're on set, you're making good decisions and you know, you know those decisions are going to play out well when you get back into the studio. Cool. If you could go back and give yourself advice at the beginning of your career, what would it be? To chill out and relax <laughs> a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. I, I, at the beginning of my career, I was so desperate to, to do something and, and keep going. And I never took a break. I just I worked. Once I found animation, I was just so desperate to, to continuously be a part of it. I never really took a break and uh, I wish I had, to be honest. I wish I'd gone on a gap year like everyone else. There's still time. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think for the people who are workaholics who actually really enjoy their work, they're not really workaholics. They're just people who enjoy what they're doing. It's also a, a rare thing, you know, to, to be able to find something. I found something at quite a young age that I enjoyed doing and I was, you know, relatively okay at that's a rare thing a lot of people spend a, you know their whole life trying to find the, the the one thing that they enjoy and can also pay the rent you know I, I count myself very lucky for that and with your work-life balance have you found balance I got quite ill a few years ago and it that experience of uh, of not being well while trying to still keep going made me reflect a little bit and and swap around my, my work-life balance a little bit. Yeah, It's unfortunate that it took something like that to kind of force me to take my foot off the gas a little bit. I am a little bit of a workaholic. If you ask my wife, you know, if we talk about when I'm going to retire, she says never. She, she doesn't think I've, I've got it in me to ever retire. I'm one of those people that if I go on holiday, you know, by day two of the holiday, I'm thinking about the next job or the next project or what we're going to do next. I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that I just genuinely enjoy it too. I enjoy making movies and I enjoy working with teams of animators. It's a genuine pleasure to walk into dailies every day and look at their work and be surprised by what they've achieved and it gives me genuine pleasure to do it. And just to end up on, what would you like to do in the future? <laughs> I can't say retire. <laughs> <laughs> well, I retired and started a podcast. I'm obviously not going <laughs> to. I don't know. I want to. I just enjoy working on different things. I love it when a, a new job comes through the door 
and it's nothing like the previous job and you know there's new people to work with and and there's new experiences to be had and there's new challenges each movie's like a giant jigsaw puzzle yeah that you've got to figure out how to put together and that is the the fun of it is figuring out how to solve those problems and come up with something that's good and original and funny or moving or whatever it needs to be so I always get to the end of one job and then I can't wait for the next one to start because I can't wait to see what it's going to be. Cool. I think that's a great place to leave it. Fantastic. Thanks very much for spending your evening sharing your knowledge with us. Oh, it's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. It's been great. Thanks very much for listening. If you like this podcast, it would be fantastic if you could go to iTunes and give us a positive review. It helps other people find us. You can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au where you can see all the work that we talked about today and lots more outstanding motion design work. Or you can come find Matthew Packwood on Facebook where I post everything you need to know about Masters of Motion. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you have a great week.